if you're gonna be at Narpen Broker Owner this year, we're throwing a party on Monday night to celebrate the release of the Narpen Accounting Standards. Come join us. We're gonna link to that in the show notes. We'd love to see you out there. It's the duty of the entrepreneur, the owner. It's your onus of leadership to ensure that these checks and balances are being put into place. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, Closers. Another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you live today here in Austin, Texas with my esteemed colleague, Brad, why are you wearing that hat? It's Narpum, Texas style, man. <laughs> I came up from uh, San Antonio to Austin wearing a, wearing my cowboy hat. They challenged me, and I said, you don't understand. I live in San Antonio. Of course I got a cowboy hat. So right. I'm going to take it off, though, because you didn't wear your breakfast club shirt. Oh, I'm man, no, as requested. I'm not going to wear my cowboy hat. Okay, so the Greg Doring impersonation is over, and yes. we're going to lead right into the episode. This is part two to three-part series where we're talking about the NARPM accounting standards. Super excited to be talking about this and really excited about the launch that's going to happen at Broker Owner. We're less than a month away. For those of you that listened to the last episode, you have some context. For those of you that haven't, this is a set of documents that help give clarity to standardizing the underlying documentation and financial performance within the industry. So that looks like having a standardized chart of accounts, best practices for financial controls, and common definitions so that we're all speaking the same language. So let's go back and tell a little bit of that story about how we got here. I'd like to hear it from your mouth, man. Oh my God, you really want the honesty? That <laughs> you just, did you just open it up for me? Okay. How did you get to this point? Well, we did the uh, benchmarking study with you. My company participated in that. You guys did several good phone calls and analysis of what we were doing. And then you put it all together and went to the PM Growth Summit a year, uh, year and Change. two months ago. Yeah. And so at the PM Growth Summit, I was on my edge of my seat thinking, here it comes. They're going to be the, it's going to be the NARPM accounting standard in the mini, miniature form. And it, it wasn't what I wanted. And of course, you know me, I'm brutally honest. So I expressed that to you. I said, you know what? There's got to be a better way. I think we can put this together. And so we kind of devised a plan that if we could get NARPM to agree to a budget, mm-hmm. that they would allow us to help you guys put this together. So all the credit really goes to NARPM and the committee members for putting this together, packaging it, and putting it in front of you guys to allow Profit Coach to build the NARPM accounting standard, which is huge in a bunch of different ways. And we want to go over that. So I got to give you credit. In this instance, you actually had a little bit of a bigger vision than I did. I knew what I was capable and what I could get done with help with the team. And that was producing the benchmarking study. The idea of actually rolling out to the industry felt pretty daunting. And the reality is that would not have happened unless Narpin had gotten behind it. You saw the opportunity, petitioned the body, got them to actually write a check. Now we wind out to here we are today. So for those that are are not quite seeing the connection between the two. The benchmarking study that we produced involved 50 companies volunteering all of their operational and financial data. And then we had to go take 50 different sets of books, translate it, scrub it, cross-match accounts to actually create parity so that we could provide roll-up aggregated results. Now, instead of doing 50, hopefully we're gonna be able to do 500. 5,000. 
5,000, because when everybody's on the same set of books, you don't have to do this crazy level of translation that involves needing a Rosetta Stone that really is just manual labor. You can actually just do a big roll up from the common categories that are all there already in the underlying chart of accounts. But at the end of the day, this is not me and you just getting excited about accounting. This is like real world practical mm -hmm. financial impact. Walk me through like boots on the ground, why somebody else should care. Absolutely. Some of the things that came out of the benchmarking study uh, was, for example, the labor efficiency ratio, some of the metrics on labor. And you put out information to the group of what that is, but a lot of it fell short because we didn't know what it means. Mm -hmm. And it's not you. It's just there's no context. It's like we're trying to compare, you know, a black pen to a blue pen. They're just not really comparing mm -hmm. because we have to put them on the same level. And so where this went is... Okay, now we got to figure out if my labor efficiency ratio is 48%, just for a fun figure, how can I compare that to anybody that's the, the size of my company? Right. I can't. Right. It's just kind of like, here's your averages and here's what you can do with that number. But at the end of the day, we couldn't really compare and compare notes. And so this led up to us devising and putting together the NARPM accounting standard. So a couple of things I think that it's really going to turn up results at is Okay, we can talk strategic stuff first, and then maybe get down into Let's do the it. leads. Let's do it. Strategically, bottom line up front, this is going to raise the value of your company. How? Because if you want to acquire or if you want to sell, you're going to be able to easily measure somebody mm -hmm. to your left and right. right. If some big entity wants to come in and buy you, they're going to say, give me your books, and you'll slide it across the table, NARPM Accounting Standard you, NARPM Accounting Standard them, mm -hmm. and they can compare in seconds versus trying to put your conjumbled numbers into their organized format. And that's going to raise the value of your company, which will eventually raise the value of the entire industry. All right, you see how that correlates together? Yeah, absolutely. I think what's underlying this is being at an ARPM event, you're at the bar, and you're trying to have a coherent conversation using these same words to mean the same thing, and it doesn't always translate that way. A door is not a door is not a door. And you know that sometimes it's just hard to pin people down on exactly what we're talking about when there's all these caveats like, mm -hmm. oh, well, you do it that way, but I don't have a maintenance division, right. or I don't have the brokerage, or this, or that, or the other. This that all goes away. That's what I love about it because everybody would almost give you the asterisk, mm -hmm, like, "Hey, right. what's your what's your revenue?" Well, you know this, that, and the other, and they give you and so what's your profit per unit? I have no idea. But we have sales, we have maintenance, and we throw it all in there, so we right. think we're making a hundred bucks a door a month. Right. And and you look at them with a raised eyebrow, and it's like, okay, we need to get on the same page here. If you want to include maintenance, great. Let's talk including maintenance. If you want to include sales, great. Let's talk including sales. Right. And so at least we're speaking mm -hmm. at the same level. And I've always hammered on you guys to come down with one metric that is the most important for any particular management company to understand. It's the profit per unit, mm -hmm. the PPU. Yes. And so if you get to that point where you clearly understand what your profit per unit is, that is a question you can answer when you're talking to somebody. Well, I'm, I'm a profit per unit of $37.50 per month per home. Great. How'd you get to that point? Because my profit per unit is $22. Yeah, and so that's where we start talking all the ancillary business stuff. Exactly. It makes it actionable. The absolute number of how much profit you have is going to vary larger, smaller company size. But profit per unit, what it reduces it down to is what do you need to do to go get that check? If the gap is 20 bucks a door and that's really what it's going to take for you to get to where you need to be profitability wise, 
Okay, 20 bucks a door. Let's go through the list of activities or programs that we could put in place. It's a lot easier to wrap your hands around in terms of taking action to move the needle. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing about, I wanna say about profit. Some of these folks out there, some of the companies may not be focused that much on profit because they're so, they're killing it in the maintenance. Right. They're killing it in the sales. Right, right. But it's good to know, hey, my profit per unit for my management division outside of maintenance, mm -hmm. outside of sales is five bucks a door. Mm -hmm. And I'm fine with that. I'm, not, I'm speaking, you know, example-wise. Yeah. But then they say, I'm in a killer market. So all the sales that I make, I kill it in sales right. because I do all the sales. Or the maintenance division, we have 20 trucks on the road mm -hmm. doing maintenance. We're killing it. And so essentially the management is the epicenter for all the other ancillary businesses that you want to run. Mm -hmm. And I've always told people that it's the epicenter for purchasing. It's the epicenter for sales at the end. It's the epicenter for doing maintenance. It's, it's the epicenter for doing other ancillary businesses, such as we started a rekey business. So those things are all right down the middle of figuring out where you are with the management company and letting you know exactly profit per unit. Yeah, if you would go crazy, you could go start a title company. I mean, there's a million I'd opportunities around this that make that hard in Texas, but there's a million things wrapped around it. But the point is, when you hear people say things like this, sometimes you hear people say crazy stuff. Like I've, I heard a fairly successful property management entrepreneur, at least in terms of revenue, say, I don't know how you can make money on the property management piece. Wow. You know, it's only with the maintenance and with the brokerage that you can keep it afloat. Well. I can show you how. Like, there's some pretty clear examples and use cases. By contrast, you got other people that swear by you can't make any money on maintenance or or maintenance markup. It's not feasible. My owners would never accept any form of maintenance markup. There's all kinds of anecdotal stories, but by standardizing this, we've got examples of what is possible, and it really just it expands the kind of conversation we're having. You're in the weeds as an operator. You got a lot to say about operational issues, but at the end of the day. Aren't we trying to pull the industry up into talking about an entrepreneurial business owner level conversation? And let's talk about that. Let me give you a real world example of how this is going to work. So let's say a friend of mine, Sean Johnson, right? Independence ICP. Capital, New Mexico. He and our buds, uh, he puts himself on the NARPM standard. We've already started to put ourselves on the NARPM standard. Six months from now, we can sit down and compare notes and say, wow, Sean, how did you do that? How did you get to that number? I'm impressed. I want to get to that number too. Mm -hmm. What did you do? Right. So it's no longer, well, our market's different and you walk away. Right. You know, that's where the conversation would end versus you can dig in and really understand it. And another example would be, uh, think of any other potential uh, peer of yours or even a company you want to be like. Mm -hmm. Let's say we went to Duke Dodson and say, I want to be at 3,000 doors like Duke Dodson. Right. You know, where do you get to, how do you get to that point? Mm -hmm. Where are his numbers? Mm -hmm. You know, how did he get there? And you start looking at stuff you want to emulate, that's where the rubber meets the road. I know it's a cliche, it's overused, but that's where it puts it, everything into context to let you understand and help you improve your business by understanding the numbers. Because if you understand the numbers to your left and right, it means something to you. Yeah, absolutely. So with Duke as an example, let's talk about growth. You know, you're at, you got to ask the question, well, how did you get there? Well, how much sales and marketing labor was deployed? That'd be a really interesting mm -hmm. question. What did the change in the customer acquisition costs look like over time? Another really interesting way to back into that conversation. But I think on the whole, what we're talking about here is allowing people to get off of the industry-specific minutia that if we're just looking at ops, it's useful, but people want to translate conversations like how many doors should a property manager be able to manage? I don't know what the answer to that is, by the way. Interesting question, but 
the cross-cutting conversation is labor cost relative to revenue. And I don't care if it's VAs, mm -hmm. departmental, portfolio, labor cost to revenue, that's a big boy financial conversation that anybody have. That, that's the conversation that the VCs and the private equity people are having when they're looking at this industry. And I think it's, it's worthwhile to have, agree? I agree. And then the other part of that is that indicates to you as a business which direction to go. Mm -hmm. That, and it can't be undersaid because if you're looking, I just thought of something. So employment numbers, you know, the, our biggest expense in our business is employees, is staff members. So if we need to understand what the average salaries are of property management companies around our industry, this will help us get to that point. This will help us set standards for, uh, not standards, but let's say benchmark, to use that term, yeah, got, yeah. of employment salaries. Mm -hmm which goes back to how many homes can they manage? Right. And at what point do you hire or fire? Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line. At what point do I need to hire another mm. manager? You see where I'm going? Yeah, totally. There's a lot of really interesting questions. So the first thing that's related to this is the fact that when we did that initial benchmarking study, the only way it was viable was by eliminating the noise around owner compensation. We had to remove any form of owner compensation and replace it with a market-based wage. This is a big part of what's missing in that conversation on, oh, what's your profitability? What's mine? Oh, mine's through the roof. It's huge. Well, am I even accounting for my own salary when I'm giving you that number? Mm -hmm. And if I am accounting for my salary, am I radically underpaying myself? That conversation is what we had to wade through in order to normalize the books. But there's a deeper level around staff members and asking yourself, does it make more sense to hire somebody really early in their career, like right out of college, and train them up? Should you go after a seasoned veteran somewhere in the middle? I think that long term, there are some correlations that could be made on that level if you have the data. This hopefully is going to move, the, move us there. The data is important. For example, we're expanding into Austin. And so to use a term from Matt Whitaker... We're looking at greenfielding Austin, mm. meaning that we want to grow it from 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 scratch. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're planting seeds, you're growing it from scratch. What do I pay a person in Austin to do that? I don't know. The data is not there, mm -hmm. right? This will give us the data after a year or two or longer to say the average compensation for property management companies in the Texas region of the Austin metro area is between X and X. Mm -hmm. Okay, you can get that online now, mm -hmm. but I don't right. trust any of that right. stuff. It's too generic. It's, it's too generic. I want to know what single-family home property management companies are paying their, mm -hmm. their staff members. Yes. This data will get us there, again, to go back to strategic decisions, hiring somebody in Austin, or do I go and buy a management company? Mm -hmm. You see how the fork in the road is illustrated with this type of a number system coming at you? Absolutely. So a couple of other caveats that are worth making. Number one, this was designed for single family residential properties. NARPM was the body that led this. So this is gonna be somewhat imperfect for HOA, commercial, pure brokerage. It accounts for and accommodates those things, but it was not primarily designed for that. So for those of you that are doing, that you're dabbling in HOA or you're dabbling in commercial, I think they'll be okay. But if you're HOA first and you have a minor single family division, you know, this may not be uh, an exact 100% fit, but that you can't make it perfect for everybody. And we chose to optimize for this specific use case. Part of what that means is this is not overly dictatorial. Your book's after you've adopted this, are still going to look somewhat different than somebody else's. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean identical parity with how the books are structured, but a roll-up into common categories 
is what the goal is, and that's what allows us to actually give that re- that reporting insight. Let's let's dig into the implementation side. Let's do it. All right, we can we can do the the mental massaging all day long about how great the NAS is, the NARPA mechanic standard. But what does that mean for somebody to say, all right, I've seen it. I'm going to the broker owner conference. I'm listening to you guys. Yep. How do I put it into my business, and what's it going to look like? And you talked about it in your first episode is that when you decide to implement the NARPM standard, you want to do it ASAFP, like right dang now. Right. I mean, we're talking February, March, do it now. And you can backfill January, February, March, mm-hmm. whenever you can get to this. And then now you're on the standard. The historical data from 18, 17, 16, 15 on way back may not be relevant. It may not be relevant to that point. It's not required. It's, it's not, not required. required to go through that exercise in order to start. Start today, start now. If you want the insights, if you if you want to pony up to either do it yourself or to hire a vendor like Profit Coach, that's an option. I'm all for it. But don't let the resistance to doing that prevent you from adopting it today. You went through this exercise internally. Quantify the effort. Was this a six-month project for you? I mean, what did this take to actually implement? A few minutes. I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not that hard, you know, because essentially you work with your accounting team. You implement the, the CSV file, which you which is part of NARPA membership, and you put that into your QuickBooks. You can upload that into your a software, whichever you use, which, by the way, the software companies are scrambling. Mm-hmm. They're all trying to get a piece of this to give to give their customers the option to go NARPA accounting standard or whatever the heck you want. Mm-hmm. It's left and right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And so they're scrambling to put this into their system. So as you start to see the implementation of this throughout the industry, you're going to see all the vendors you can mention, all the names I could drop, they're all going to be wanting to give you the option to do this and make it an easy button or talk through uh, implementing it on a broad scale for their systems. Mm-hmm. Put it into QuickBooks, right? Or Sage or however you do it. That's going to be your business accounting. The challenge we have as managers, we've talked through this, is we have accounting within accounting. Right. Corporate we have, and trust. We have your trust accounting with all your owners, your tenants, and then on top of that, you have your business accounting, mm-hmm. which makes things that much more complicated. We've had to explain this to some high-level accounting people in, in our business recently, and it's just like they have a hard time getting that. Mm-hmm. They're like, your business is so unusual because you have two levels of accounting. I said, I know, yeah. I know, comma, I know. Uh, but it's what we got to deal with. So going back to the implementation side, talk through somebody potentially on what you guys would recommend. So they call you up and say, Jordan, how do I implement this? What would you say as a professional advisor? Yeah, so there's really three strategies. You can either do it. The, the quickest and dirtiest way to do it is just to upload an Excel file and worry about nothing in the past and only be forward looking. That is literally something you can do in a matter of minutes. If you're asking me for best practices, I would say to take it all the way to the other side of the equation is to actually not only convert and translate your existing uh, COA items to the new ones to basically map them, but to also go back and do that historically. So if you want the analysis piece, if you want to know how did we get here and what have been the trends, that's going to be the gold standard. There's no question about it. But again, it's not required in order for you to, to do that forward looking. So one of the things that you just mentioned was you're talking about having some folks do that internally and kind of realize that there's the complexity of the business. I feel like this comes up over and over and over again is just acknowledging 
there is at least one way in which this industry is special, and that is folks realize for your average realtor, for your hotshot realtor getting into this industry and just realizing at some point the light bulb goes on, it's like, wow, there's actually like some significant financial responsibility. How many small businesses are dealing with hundreds of thousands of dollars of other people money, other people's money that needs to stay in the cookie jar and not get touched? That's, that's pretty unique. Yeah, at our level, it's unusual. You could be, like your first episode mentioned, you could be a million bucks in revenue and have a million bucks in trust. Mm -hmm. I mean, how often does that potentially happen? And that might be the numbers may be off just a hair there, but conceptually it's sound. I mean, you, I, I don't know what the numbers would be, but let's say you could potentially have, you know, $1 and then 75 to 50 cents in trust. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's, it's unusual for that to happen. So that puts you in jeopardy from the state accounting, uh, all, the, all the state entities. That puts you in jeopardy for any sort of theft or, or fraud issues at your company. And so it's very important you get those those issues tightened up. Right. And you know, we know from experience that it can happen to anybody. Everyone's out there thinking, oh, I'm good. I'm good. My brother-in-law, my sister's uncle's cousin's sister, mm -hmm. you know, they're doing my books. We're good. We're totally cool. I trust them implicitly. Well, we've seen husband and wife teams. Wow. Fraud, right? Talk to any accountant. Talk to any like high-level CPA. Mm -hmm. Talk to a forensic accountant. And they're going to tell you story after story after story of people that were trusting one another. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the fraud creeps in. Slowly but surely. When you see millions flash in front of you, mm -hmm. it's tough not to say, ah, I'm just going to take $10. I'll and pay back. I'll pay back. And then that goes down the primrose path mm -hmm. of just negative. And that's something you have to build into your system. Right. It's part of what you guys talk about. In the, in the financial controls guide. Financial controls guide. And I really, I'm a big proponent of that because I want that to be a big part of what people implement into their system. Go buy the whole Reagan mantra. Mm -hmm. Trust, but verify. Mm -hmm. And that's what you got to put in your business. Right. Trust, but verify. And that's going to ensure that you're not getting stolen from, that fraud issues don't happen. And just more innocent, take it more to an innocent scale, mistakes. Mm -hmm. We all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you're trying to avoid mistakes, figure out two or three sets of eyeballs, check in on your stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's what your financial controls guide will walk them through. So we're speaking directly to the fast-moving type A entrepreneur that thinks that this compliance stuff is kind of a necessary evil. That's who that guide is written for. It's not written for... Uh, an accountant necessarily, they'll still benefit from reading it, but it's written from the business owner that needs to be thinking about how can I responsibly delegate? How can I responsibly abdicate? I don't necessarily have to be doing everything in the accounting function, but what do I still have to do to at least be aware and, mm -hmm. and to manage? When you think about what that looks like internally within your company, what is, just quickly, what are like the most meaningful things that you do that are the top of the list that thwart and prevent fraud now based on having been in the business for as long as you have? Good example is having two sets of eyes and then dual authentic authentication, mm -hmm. tough word, on nearly everything. Okay, so I'm the, sign, I'm the one signing the checks. I'm the one doing the ACH approvals. Uh, also, then you have an outside firm, potentially a local accounting firm, mm -hmm. potentially virtual assistants. Somebody with no dog in a fight, somebody with completely neutral attitude, looking at all the transactions, maybe doing your reconciliations, maybe reporting back to you, looking at your trust account, looking at your books, looking at your balances. I mean, really, if we sat down and, and wrote it up, there's probably, which you have, there's probably 20 to 25 things that they want right. to look at per week, per month to ensure that the fraud is not happening, that mistakes are not happening. Mm -hmm. And so, as you pointed out in your first episode, uh, entrepreneurs like us, uh, guys that, that are more guys and gals that think more type A, uh, this, this stuff puts me to sleep. 
You two nerds, you know, you and Danny, you guys hit it nail on the head there as far as getting it done. Because I hear this, I hear talking SEO, I want to go to sleep. You know, put me right to sleep and wake me up tomorrow. Uh, but, Which I love observing, by the way, listening to that episode you did with Dave Borden where he starts getting into the weed of SEO and you're yeah. like, all right, let's go wrap Dave, it up. Get, I, I tell him that all the time, <laughs> Dave, your SEO stuff puts me right to sleep, man. I want to curl up and take a nap. But but the, someone's got to worry about someone's it. Someone's got to worry about it. And it's the, it's the duty of the entrepreneur, the owner. Mm-hmm. It's your onus of leadership to ensure that these checks and balances are being put into place. I've been a victim of that. I overtrusted my people. Some people think that's good leadership. Oh, I'm not micromanaging my people, mm-hmm. right? You're not micromanaging your people. You are trusting but verifying. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's the old premise. And so uh, I understand the micromanagement stuff. In the military, it was a big term. Don't micromanage your people. Give them your intent. Give them your end state mm-hmm. and kick them out the door. Let yeah. them go. Yeah. Well, at the end of the, the, end of the day, you know, employees are our biggest concern as growing entrepreneurs. I have 17 plus staff members now in San Antonio, 10 plus in Mexico. We're growing on an annual basis, adding one to two Mm. staff members per Mm. year. They are our biggest concern. Mm. I don't want to call it a headache, but anybody who's in my position understands that you're always dealing with something, Mm -hmm. either an unemployment claim or a hire or a fire or some sort of other issue surrounding employees. It's always constantly there. I no longer manage homes. I manage people, mm-hmm. processes, I manage and yeah. processes. Right. So in the book Black Swan, the author talks a little bit about this idea of a barbell strategy where there are two things you really got to focus on. You need to focus on, on the one end, not dying, and on the other end, the biggest possible outcome. Focus on that big 10x picture, but also make sure you don't die. This is an example of a way to die. And I know without asking that you have had some backroom conversations where somebody in a more candid environment is willing to admit, hey, like I'm, I'm behind. Like I found out there's 50, 75 K missing and I'm trying to catch up before the Department of Real Estate does. Those are painful conversations to be a part of. Some people go down in flames, some people pull out of it, but this is definitely a situation where there, if there is not management and oversight, this can, can stop all the music in the room. So I think it's, it's worthwhile for that point, which is pretty obvious. Think of your sanity. Think of the sanity involved if you know exactly where your numbers are. If you have the checks and balances in place that allows you to sleep better at night, mm-hmm. knowing that your trust is good, knowing that your owners have been paid, knowing that your employees are paid, knowing that everything is fine and locked up at your office. Think, think of those checks and balances. It just puts a, it's a sense of ease in your mind that allows you to mm-hmm. do what you want to do, yes. which is create opportunities. And so entrepreneurs create jobs, create opportunities, create revenue sources that benefit other people around them. It's not about being a money-hungry, grubbing person. Mm-hmm. It's, about, it's about recognizing ideas that can solve a problem, the Shark Tank method, mm-hmm. right? What problem does this solve? Right. You know, we've talked about this before, but in our business in San Antonio, a problem was where we solved it was we were making two phone calls to do two actions to do a tenant move out, which was we called somebody to do an inspection, okay? And we had to call somebody to do a rekey to be code compliance. We created a business inside of our own business called Manager's Rekey where we do that in one action. Nice. One tech goes to the home, does the rekeying, does the inspection, one invoice, one phone call, one action, one report. That's solving a problem. Streamline. 
And so we're actually taking the Narpama County standard and putting it straight on that business. Nice. So the point I'm trying to make is all the ancillary businesses, you can use the Narpama County standard chart of accounts to put it against any business you want. Now you can throw stuff out, you're thinking right away, you're not gonna use management fees. Okay, I get it. But you can replace some of those things totally. there and use some of the guidelines that are gonna be frequenting with any business. Mm -hmm. So you can tailor the document. We talked a little bit about financial controls. It's kind of a negative rain cloud conversation, but the bulk of what we're trying to do here is for that positive outcome to provide more clarity around conversations like, I want to grow. I want to work on the business, not in the business. I'm thinking about hiring my first BDM or my first manager, et cetera. How do you get your head wrapped around what needs to happen to top line revenue in order for you to make the hire and still have the profit that you want? This document really helps you kind of think through those types of conversations. I know that you've had to work through that as your company has grown and gone through different stages. First, you're solo, then a couple of key team members. Now you actually have some formal management in place. As you think about for optimizing for exit value and you think about how this could uh, help you with that, like what does that actually look like in practice? For exit value? Mm -hmm. Well, we can talk about that. But what, what I want to do is make sure, uh, I wanted to illustrate another point with some comments context and real world. So you did the benchmarking study. Yeah. You did the, uh, basically the analysis of where our labor efficiency ratio is, right. how much money we spend on labor. Just recently, we transformed all of our portfolio management compensation. And so that was a tough drill. You know, we took them off of a revenue share model and put them more on a salary with a small incentive type model mm -hmm. to control those costs because mm -hmm. those costs were getting out of hand. Inflated. They were very inflated and it was not the intent to go to that model. Okay. The intent was to give them a small piece and let them grow it, grow yeah. it, grow it, grow it. Yeah. That got out of control pretty quick. Next thing you know, we're paying uh, managers six-figure salaries. Okay. And it just didn't equate to the industry as a whole. And it didn't equate to somebody coming in right. the first six months of their employment and they're right. making a giant salary because we just dump a ton on their lap. So we put that under control because of, again, the NARPA accounting standard, the benchmarking that you did. We started to realize what we where we were out of whack mm -hmm. and made an adjustment. Yeah. That's the context of the story. I love that. And I just got to pause and interrupt to say that part of what you're hearing is that comp models need to evolve and change over time. Mm -hmm. Some of the weight and the heaviness about that conversation is like, oh, I gotta think about it, I gotta get it right, because I don't ever wanna have this conversation more than once. The reality is, your operating agreement, for those of you that are in partnerships, that's gonna get stale. It needs to change over time. Compensation models need to change over time, and you have to have the wherewithal of realizing you can't fully prognosticate and forecast what's gonna happen, but you can anticipate that you're gonna need to revisit it. Agree? At the real world level, it's often a combination of the personnel you have and the model that you want to put into place. It's never just, I'm going to put a compensation model down and then you're going to fit into that. Mm -hmm, right. Okay. Now you'd like to say that as you get bigger, and I think we can do that as we get bigger because we standardize our portfolio management compensation model is posted on our website. So when we say pull the trigger to hire PM number six, it's pulling the trigger to hire PM number six. It's all right there. Mm -hmm. Okay, there is no, well, what are we gonna pay that person? Let me think about that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all right there in writing what we're going to potentially offer that person compensation. The point back is we compensated people a whole lot differently at 200 homes than we do now at close to 900 homes. Mm -hmm. Different level of compensation, different staffing, different mindset. So it has to evolve. Absolutely. I'm backing you up on that. It has to evolve. I'm talking to you in like the context of the real world, what we're doing right now. All right. 
Circling back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talked back to exit value. tangent. You want to go and talk about the exit strategy. I think this affects us hugely because it's going to get us a higher multiple. Hmm. Let me say that five times if I need to. Because it's going to get us a higher multiple when a management company buyer can come in and say, let me look at your books. And they're comparing it in 30 seconds. Well, you, Mr. Buyer, buyer number one, I'm not really impressed with your offer. Let me go look at another buyer. Buyer number two comes in and let me look at your mm. books. Okay, buyer number two makes a higher offer mm. because you can look at the books in seconds. Buyer number three comes in and says, well, let me look at your books. You're on the Narpham Accounting Standard. Okay, I can look at your books in five seconds and it's buyer number three comes with an offer. You get competing offers, raises the value of your company, raises the standard multiple for the industry. I love it. So the offer pool expands as you lower the bar for due diligence. Think about what you got to do a year ago. Somebody's got to, you got to engage with somebody, you got to potentially do a letter of intent, you got to potentially do some sort of like a non-compete for 30 days so you can get them in and let them look at your books. They spend weeks looking at your books because they got to take piece one and fit into piece nine and piece four and fit, into, fit that into yeah, piece two. Right. And it's a huge, tedious task. Right. And then you have to have conversation after conversation about all these different outliers, mm-hmm. owner compensation, all that junk. There's going to be these different things. Right. Weeks later, after the buyer's like, you know, wanting to like lowball them mm. because of all this work and the seller's getting anxious. Mm-hmm. The property management company owner who's now turning seller is getting anxious. Right. Man, give me that offer. Well, I want to get out of here. I want right. to exit. And they can't because they're tied up into a due diligence type of letter of intent. Mm-hmm. 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. So it makes the offer producing process very tedious. You got to back me up on that. That's totally, I can see that, I can envision this right now. If I raise my hand and say, I'm, I'm ready to go sit on the beach and play golf every right, day, right. I want to entertain multiple offers. Yeah. And because I'm on the Narpama County Standard, people can clearly look at that and say, yep, you are doing exactly what we think you're doing in revenue, profit per unit, this, that, the other compensation. Mm-hmm. We're going to offer you 1.25 revenue. And all this is because we're talking about an 80% solution. If your focus is speed and in business, that's my philosophy, that's my belief, is that speed matters. I had a mentor back in the day, former Army Ranger, and one of his favorite quotes was, speed is my camouflage. If you're focused on speed, you're looking for 80% solutions, and this is an example. Brad and I are not saying that this is going to be the entirety of your due diligence and you would never need to do more than what the NARPA Mechanics Standard can offer. Of but If you're looking for an 80% solution of like, should I waste my time? Should I invest the additional time? This is the starting point that can get you 80% clear, either as a seller or as a buyer to facilitate the velocity. I love that you brought that up. Ultimately, the success of the NARPM accounting standard is going to be be dependent upon adoption. It's gonna evolve, it's gonna change over time. This is a fantastic starting point, but the reality is this is a multi-year journey in terms of the industry adopting it and in terms of it being refined over time. But what I love is that this is built for NARPM members. This Mm -hmm. is built to be a tool to grow NARPM membership because it's about professionalizing the industry of what we're doing as a whole. The professionalization, you can't talk about the service quality divorced from what's happening on the business and the finance side of things. Healthy businesses with profit provide excellent service. That's a fact. Very true. So let's talk about the exit again. One thing we should bring up is the roadmap to exit. I have no intentions of exiting right now, but let's say somebody comes along and let's say another another player comes in, another NARPA member, 
and that person says, I want to exit in five years. Mm -hmm. And they come to you as a consultant sure. and say, I want to exit in five years. Help me get prepared to exit in five years. Right. Step one, put you on the NARPM standard. Mm -hmm. Step two, we do an annual consultation right. to look at your numbers to say, you need to get this higher, you need to get this lower. Position yourself in five years for that exit. Right. You're going to get max dollar. So this is a roadmap mm -hmm. to build the plan for a successful exit if you want to. If you're on the acquiring side, same concept. You, you make a great point. I think what I hear you saying is this it is non-optional for you to adopt some kind of a standard to be able to have financial clarity. And you must have financial clarity in order to hit peak exit value. This is one that NARPM has already done the work of actually providing for the industry which is a huge contribution. And I think this is long-term something that's actually gonna attract more people into the organization that maybe would have thought, you know, I don't need any more advice on uh, service animals or operational stuff. But I mean, honestly, who would not benefit from having a higher level financial conversation? I love that NARPM is being pulled in that direction. You wanna hear of an interesting concept that will also come out of this? What's that? Business brokerage for property management companies specifically. Interesting. Business, let me say it again. Business brokerage for PM companies yeah. only. Yeah. What if that person were to come along? What if that company were to come along and say, I'm going to go out and shop your company right, right. to all the bidders out there, all the acquirers out there. And because you're on the NARPA accounting standard, yeah. they can quickly take a look at you and make a bid. So that brokerage is there's a business opportunity for some lucky people out there that want to go down that route. I don't want to go down that route but some people may want to, and they're going to be knocking on the door of the acquirers. And what's that gonna do for the acquirers? They're gonna to have to raise their game mm. to make those acquisitions. Which is fantastic. No more of the spray and pray method of sending out a bunch of letters. Like And the generic business brokers, they don't understand management. Absolutely. They're just going to go out to try and get you a, a buyer somewhere. They're going to try and sell your contracts, Correct. not your business. Correct. That's it. They're not really trying to sell the business. And if you can illustrate to them that you have a solid business under the NARPM accounting standard with all the different metrics mm -hmm. that come out of that, right. they can easily shop that to the highest bidder, potentially, the right fit. And it may not be the highest bidder. I don't want to... Uh, let, me, let me back up a little bit. I don't want to pigeonhole that as the only thing you're looking for sure, on an exit. It's your baby. It's gotta be the right fit. Okay? Take care of your clients. Take care of your staff, take care of your clients, take care of you, don't give you a bunch of BS with a bunch of clawbacks. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's gotta be the right fit there. Right. And so a business broker that understands your business, which someday will materialize in this industry, they're gonna be able to get you the best fit for your business on a planned exit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think part of what we're talking about here is the professionalization of the industry as a whole. A rising tide lifts all ships. Do you see this having the potential to actually, I mean, this was, it sounds audacious, but do you think this has the potential to raise the potential of the industry as a whole in terms of service quality, business value, et cetera? Absolutely, 100%, no doubt about it. You want to talk service quality? Absolutely. That's going to be the first thing. We are a service business. We're very aware of that. We want to service the tenants. We want to service the owners. We want renewals. We want happy owners. We want sales. That's, those are some of the few things that we want. By understanding our numbers, it allows us to make good hires mm -hmm. to provide good service. Right. Okay. It, it's like one, two, and three. It's not like, I'm going to go out and do good service and you're doing it all yourself. That's very easy. You can have your phone on 24-7. You can never take a vacation, mm -hmm. right? That's pretty easy for the single operator to do. But to build that, I hate the word, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say uh, environment, uh, the, the environment, the culture. I hate that word. I'm going to cringe. But to build the ethos 
around. Ethos. All right, ethos. We landed at ethos. I feel you. Ethos. Okay. We used to call it the warrior ethos in the military, and to build that into your into your your client servicing company. Mm That's what's going to get you a higher multiple when people start looking at you. That's what's going to make a very solid company for you and make you sleep at night very well. So use that ethos. Let's just lean in on that. Part of what that looks like is pushing the conversation into your team members. How do you manage? Do you manage with numbers? Do you manage by having your team connected to the bottom line? Some people do that in terms of profit sharing. I think that's great. I think that's interesting. A lot of ways to skin that cat. But even if you don't, you can have your team still understand that at the end of the day, you could do your best work but if this company has no profit mm-hmm. they ain't gonna cut it do you do anything internally in, in connecting your team to bottom line financial outcomes yeah we definitely do and one example is we compensate nicely on renewals nice Where to me renewals are everything and I'm talking tenant renewals mm-hmm. when a tenant renews we compensate the PMs very nice and I give them a good little bonus because that drives everything Happy tenants equal happy owners. Mm-hmm. The owners never leave you. Mm-hmm. Owners never want to sell. Mm-hmm. And if they do want to sell, they'll sell the tenant place because of a renewal. Right. So there's just that's one of the biggest things. I mean, I could talk KPIs all day long with you, but I'm going to throw down a challenge for you now. All right, hit it. So the deliverables you put on the table were the CSV file, definitions, and help me out with a couple other things that you put out. Yeah, so there's four specific documents. Four specific, right. There's the chart of accounts and a conversion guide. Mm-hmm. There is the metrics and definitions. There's the benchmarking study. And there's the financial controls guide. Those are the four documents that comprise the NAS. So there might be a part of that somewhere along those same lines, but I would challenge you guys to the next iteration of this Narcombe County Standard include the key performance indicators. Include a booklet of KPIs, mm-hmm. how you create KPIs, where to get KPIs, what they're supposed to look like, what the benchmarking is. Tie that into the net promoter score. Mm-hmm. How do you get net promoter score numbers? I mean, go into the how. And I love that stuff because we use net promoter score at length, and I'm a big believer in getting it via phone. Mm-hmm. Get a net promoter score. So example, maintenance work order is completed. Erica in my office calls the tenant and says, what did you think of the experience with RentWorks? On a scale of one to 10, how would you recommend us to your families and friends? She's getting a 98 to 99 NPS score right now on tenants that she reaches via phone. Love it. And if there's an issue, she identifies it, mm-hmm. addresses it, and circles back with maintenance yeah. to close that gap, okay? And you can't do that with an email. Mm-hmm. Can, you might be able to do that with a text message, and I say might. But a phone call is a very powerful thing. Interesting. Backing up a bit, the key performance indicator of having that net promoter score in front of you is what I challenge you guys to help produce for the next iteration of NAS. Wow, I love it. So two things. Number one, there is no finish line. You can always go deeper. You can always do more. Number two, we got classic entrepreneur over here. After the first several thousand hours of effort, the document (laughs) isn't released yet and he's already pushing for more. Yes, we believe that there will be multiple iterations of this document. It'll expand, more member feedback, more adoption, more real world circumstances to make this thing better. Um, I'm stoked, man. The industry's moving forward. I'm ready to go get some lunch and then go to the Narpum Texas style. Put our hat back on. Yeah, exactly. We're going to let Brad put his hat back on. Thanks for... uh, Narpum Texas style. Here I come. Thanks for coming in and thanks for taking leadership on petitioning the board and being the bull in the china shop that actually got this thing approved. I can't take really any of the credit because really we just put together the packet and Narpum approved it and they did all the work. I mean, it's their budget, right? Yeah. So 
it's all to them, really. So I appreciate everybody kind of putting it all together and making it work. This is going to be fantastic. I'm excited to see the end results of this. And there's no end result. Let me say that again. I'm excited to see continuing positive results mm-hmm. come out of right, this right. to where it can help the industry grow as a whole. All right. Here's the future. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming in. See you guys soon. If you've made it this far, thanks for listening. Profit Coach is going to be throwing a party to celebrate the release of the NARPM Accounting Standards on Monday, February 25th to kick off Broker Owner. The details are going to be linked in the show notes. We'd love to see you there.